Hey everyone, and welcome back to the SFC podcast, a podcast about what it looks like to be the light of Jesus in the ski and snowboard culture. All right, so we're in this SFC Ask Me Anything series. This is week four now, so we're on question four. And so far, the questions from the past three weeks, they've been focused specifically on ministry. Namely, how should we go about structuring our lives to ensure that we have the capacity to carry out the ministry that God's given to us? How should we invest into and encourage others as they carry out the ministry that God has given to them? And how should we think about success in ministry? And what does that actually look like? This week, though, we're breaking from that how should we think about or go about ministry theme, and we're addressing a question that has much more to do with theology as it relates to cultural apologetics. When we asked people to start submitting questions for this series, we knew that we were going to receive some tough questions. Tough in the sense that there's just a lot of different opinions and takes on these various subjects that people want us to cover. And that's very true of this week's question. There's a lot of different opinions and takes. This week's question is about social justice and LGBTQIA. We received a couple of questions about these subjects, and so what we're doing this week is we're combining those questions into one episode. And so the question for this week reads, Culture is changing quickly, and it seems as though churches are starting to adapt their beliefs to align with culture rather than God's word. How do we in the church and in the ski community stand firm in our faith and share our beliefs wisely on topics such as social justice and LGBTQIA? And what does the Bible have to say about this? Now, before we jump into this question and have our conversation, a couple of things. These are huge topics. And and the way that these questions were posed, um, they were pretty broad and open-ended. There weren't a lot of specifics given. And so I want to begin by noting that this episode won't cover everything. It just can't. It would take weeks, if not more, to get into everything that these topics entail. So we're going to take a pretty broad approach to this. But even so, I think we'll be able to get to the heart of what this question is asking. So that's number one. It was We received some broad questions, so we're going to take a broad approach in our answer. Number two, I realize that not everybody is going to agree with everything said in this episode. And that's okay. But if you find yourself upset with something that was said or not said in this episode, then then I want to encourage you to reach out and to talk with someone about it. If you want to talk with someone from the SFC support office, then reach out. If you want to talk to our guest, go ahead. He'd love that. I'll provide his contact information. But don't just sit and stew in isolation. That won't be helpful. Reach out to somebody and, and have a conversation. All right. So that's my little disclaimer. Now let me introduce you to our guest. Joining me this week to help navigate this question is Dr. Jim Howard. Dr. Howard is the senior pastor of Dillon Community Church in Summit County, Colorado, and he's served in that position for the last eight years. Quick background for you, Dr. Howard is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he's received a THM as well as a PhD in biblical studies focusing on the New Testament. Prior to coming on staff at Dillon Community Church, Dr. Howard taught on the faculties of several seminaries and universities, and even though he's now the full-time pastor at DCC, Dr. Howard continues to teach doctoral classes at Denver Seminary and teaches abroad annually in several third-world countries. He's written books like The Freedom to Choose, What to Do When the Bible is Unclear, and he's been featured on popular podcasts like Back Porch Theology with Lisa Harper. And as a quick plug, you should really go 
pick up that book and read it and listen to that podcast. It's really good. All that to say, Dr. Howard is one smart guy. Um, But that's not the only reason I invited Dr. Howard or Pastor Jim, as I like to call him, to join us today. I asked Pastor Jim to join us today because he's a local pastor in a shred town. He, He gets it. His church is full of people with varying opinions on a variety of topics. And Pastor Jim, in my humble opinion, does such a great job of loving on people well, regardless of their backgrounds and beliefs. I've been around for the last four years, and I can personally attest to this. Pastor Jim isn't just some stuffy academic cooped up in his office writing papers and sermons all day. No, he's constantly out meeting with people from the community on their turf, in bars and coffee shops, having difficult but life-giving conversations. And that's why I invited him to be on this week's episode, because he lives this. He, he doesn't just talk about how to have difficult conversations on hard subjects. He goes out there and he does it, and he models this well. And I know I've really appreciated his leadership and the example that he set for all of us who attend DCC. So with that, Welcome, Pastor Jim. We're honored to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So let's jump into it. You heard the question earlier, and I know that you've talked about these topics within your church and as someone who's attended the church and is a part of the men's ministry there, I know that these are topics that are on the forefront of people's minds, namely, how should we as the church think about or approach LGBTQIA and social justice issues? And I know that these are emotional topics and that people have different opinions on them. And so as a pastor, how have you tried to go about addressing these topics? And rather than lumping this all together, maybe we will just start with social justice issues and then move into LGBTQIA. Well, social justice issues are, uh, should be at the very heart and soul of Christianity. It's interesting. I, I would love to uh, have a conversation with whoever posed the question uh, I'm not sure I heard it correctly, but it felt a little bit like, and this is how the world views Christianity, is that when we put our values out there in the world, that results in some level of oppression, which is really not, should not be the case. Um, you know, in Summit County, I've I've had over 5,000, maybe 6,000 beers and coffees in the last nine years. And I've only met one person who wasn't raised in a Christian home. The rest were and walked away. And their viewpoint of Christianity really centers around judgment, which is at the heart of the concept of oppression. Mm. But it's not really tied to social justice. If Christ, if Galatians 5 tells us that uh, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, that means that, number one, we have freedom, but it also means we have choice. Because uh, their verse 13 says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And so freedom is the opposite of oppression. So it's very intriguing to me how in our country we have managed to link together Christianity, which most people interpret some level of judgment Mm. uh, and maybe even condemnation with oppression, because judgment and oppression do go together, and freedom does not go with oppression. So if you really follow Christian doctrine through, uh, it should be the opposite, that as you move toward Christ, you enjoy more and more freedom. So the world does see Christianity as a very oppressive kind of thing, because we like to tell people, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So when Christ reduced the entire Mosaic law down to two commands, love God and love people, and Paul reduced it down to one command, love people, Leviticus 19, then, uh, boy, that pretty much creates a wide open, a wide open space for Mm -hmm. ministry in a variety of contexts. I feel like a lot of the problems that we deal with aren't necessarily new. They're just maybe reshaped 
they've they've shifted a little bit, right? Was Ecclesiastes say nothing new under nothing the sun? new under the sun? And so, I, I, as I look back and I see maybe even consider my parents' generation, there was causes and and activists going on in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, absolutely, and, there were. And now and we're this, dealing with the same thing. It just maybe has shifted a little bit, looks a little bit different, and mm-hmm. and so it is interesting to me as this question is posed because I do think it's important. We want to stand firm in our faith. We want to do that in a loving way. But the way that the question is posed is interesting to me because it's almost like we frame social justice pejoratively in the negative. The Bible commands us to be a people of justice, right? And so I think the the question that I, I consider is how have we framed justice in our minds? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think the question is, do we want justice or do we want to fight for justice? I think it's evident that we should be a people that fight for justice, fight for the people that are oppressed and marginalized. Yes. In but, fact, almost all the prophets, that was one of their accusations, is that the uh, nation of Israel was not standing up for the people that couldn't mm-hmm. take care of themselves, the marginalized, the widows, the orphans, the, you know. And so I guess my question would be, knowing that there is nothing new under the sun, knowing that the church has always had to deal with different causes or, or there's always been activism going on, how have you seen in your experience how the church has handled those conversations and topics well? And maybe how have you seen it handled poorly? Um, like I said, mm-hmm. not necessarily a new problem, but it's maybe shifted a little bit. Yeah, and that, uh, just to be honest with you, Ryan, a lot of that depends on where you are in the country, okay? I like to joke up here that, um, I mean, 7% of Summit County uh, professes to be Protestant, so you know the actual number is less. Mm. And so uh, that gives me a wide open door to go into bars and talk to people and meet them, which I do all the time. I spend 20 hours a week in bars and coffee shops. Um, but if I was in the middle of a small town in Oklahoma where 96% of the people are conservative Christians, I wouldn't have that same freedom. Hmm. So even how you approach it is going to be oriented along different cultural lines. And if you think about the uh, the way the New Testament's laid out, all the epistles really are written to different ethnic groups. Hmm. So the Corinthian epistles are written to Greeks. The Roman uh, Romans is written to uh, people of Italian descent. Uh, Titus is a Mediterranean island culture. The churches in Asia Minor are more Turkish-oriented. So within the Roman Empire, they had so many different ethnic groups. And what these letters all demonstrate is how do you navigate the new covenant within a different cultural context? Hmm. So in the Corinthian epistles, Paul says the young widows there should remain single. But in 1 Timothy or in Ephesus, they need to remarry. So that's the challenge that each of us have, no matter where your people are around the world. Uh, They're navigating a certain cultural um, set of ideals and values with the new covenant. And uh, that's both challenging and complex, but certainly rewarding. Hmm. So we can do things here in our county that I couldn't do in many other counties in the in the United States. Interesting. Because of the freedom that I have here. Mm-hmm. So that's the beginning point. And so part of it is how do they view social justice within the different contexts? You know, it's interesting in a well-known passage. I'm sure several of your people will know it. It's in 2 Corinthians 5. Everyone knows the verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. The old is gone. So they're part of the new creation. The new has come. What they don't know is the verse before, very few people know it, that says, therefore, uh, based on what Christ has done, we now regard no one from a worldly point of view. Mm. And so how does the world world view people? Well, I mean, just think about what's going on in our world today. 
are you, you know, are you Caucasian? Are you not? Are you a minority? Are you one of the oppressed or are you one of the oppressors? Are you trans? Are you gender fluid? Are you lesbian? Are you gay? Are you, I mean, the list goes on and on. Now we can come up with 50 different labels, Hmm. but uh, Paul says we no longer regard people uh, from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. It's real Hmm. simple. And so um, right off the bat, you, you begin to sense some level of freedom in that. So there's no longer a scarlet A for adultery, no longer a scarlet H for homosexuality, none of that. The question is, are you living as a Christian or not? Mm. So at the very end, again, it goes on. These are all familiar voices that were reconciled to Christ. Therefore, verse 20, we're Christ's ambassadors, all right? And to make this appeal, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our mission. But then he gives this real intriguing verse. God made him, that's Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. During the Reformation, that verse led them to hold to a theology of imputed righteousness, Mm. which I happen to believe in, but not from this verse. Mm. Because this verse, the word for righteousness, is the same root word for the word for justice. And so what if you translate it this way? God made Christ, who had no sin, to become our sin, so that we might become the agents of justice on behalf of God Mm. in the world. And that's what reconciliation is all about. We should be the experts in reconciliation. I mean, we that's our theology. We've been reconciled with each other and with Christ. And so uh, we should be experts in that. It should be on the forefront of all of our, our programming. Mm-hmm. But what that looks like around the world is going to shift from culture to culture. So I traveled to Nepal. It looks very different there than it does Mozambique, Africa when I traveled there. Just got back from Kenya. It's different there. I've been to Haiti many times. It's different there. Uh, it's different from Colorado to uh, Mississippi. And so the the agendas that are within any cultural setting created by the world, the world standards, which naturally divide us, um, you have to take all those into account. So it is somewhat fluid hmm. when you go from place to place. How you you have to first identify what are the what are the divisions that culture has created that we need to create reconciliation for? Okay, Sometimes it's along sexual lines. Sometimes it's along ethnic lines. Sometimes it's along uh, financial lines, for example. And so as you figure out your culture, you can find very creative ways to bring the goodness of God into that setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very good. There's a, I feel like there's a lot to unpack there, but <laughs> just the... One of the key themes that I'm pulling out there is, okay, so as you're in your community, identify the values of your community. You're There's not no be one able to... set agenda anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk at a general, generic level about the state agenda, the LBTG, you know, Q agenda, all that, but there's really no one agenda. There are facets of multiple agendas that energize individual cultures mm-hmm. and the people within it. Yeah. And, and it's so... typically against what they perceive to be Christianity. Almost everybody I've met has a stereotype of Christianity. They don't really understand it. Mm. They really don't. That's why I'm not afraid to tell anybody. I love telling people in bars, yeah, I'm a pastor, because then they roll the eyes. <laughs> and I and I just pointed out, I said, I saw that, you know. If you don't mind, tell me this tell me the story of what happened so that when I just said pastor, you thought negatively. Because mm. that's not the kind of pastor I want to be. Mm. So I mean I've heard thousands of stories of all centered around oppression and judgment. Yeah. But that's not us. Not here. 
Yeah. I mean, you want to be whatever you're going to be, you know? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I mean, to just pull out something that I think is pretty important is that you've identified is that you, you've encountered a lot of people in this county, in Summit County, Colorado, who have a church background. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they've grown up in the church. They've experienced the church. And for whatever reason, because there's a myriad of reasons, they are no longer a part of the church. And I think sometimes it's important for us to just, it's its the discipline of being able to listen. <laughs> and we, be patient. We, and being patient. We, we like to talk really quickly and we like to verbally vomit onto people all of our <laughs> beliefs. Um, but we I think become salesmen. We like to sell them on Christianity. Yeah, but I think it's important to take time to validate what is maybe valid in their concerns or in their experience. Maybe the reason that they're upset with the church is because they've identified some very real hypocrisies in the church. And maybe the reason the people in the church are angered is because they're tapping into some very real hypocrisies that the people in the church are living out. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so I think it's important to that identify what's going on in your community. What are the cultural values? What are the ideals that are being lived out? What are their their motivations. Um, we know that sin doesn't conform to a specific political party. And so this, this kind of opens up the gambit for us to be able to to address what that specific person is processing or dealing with. And and so I think that that's really, really good. Yeah, I've learned over, I've learned over lots and lots of years, now decades, that the qualities that are most important for true evangelism to me are, number one, patience, Number two, curiosity, really wanting to know. Number three is authentic love. We are wired by God to know if people really like us or not. Mm. We're wired that way. So whenever I walk into a coffee or wherever I'm going, I quickly just stop and say, I don't know what I'm about to hear, but I'm going to just love this person because that's my job. Mm. Only the Holy Spirit can convict, redeem, and transform a person. I cannot do that. So what's left? To love them. Mm-hmm. So I think a third quality is to be genuinely, authentically in love with whoever you're sitting in front of. It doesn't matter, right? And then the fourth thing is to be bold. Mm. And don't be afraid to be a Christian and tell them. And I've never really had anybody get hostile, but when they start disagreeing, just ask them, well, what happened that you, you know? I was sitting in a bar one time talking to uh, three guys. Uh, we were watching a football game. They didn't know me from Adam. It was a, a bar in San Francisco. We were watching the football game there in front of me. So I started throwing trash bombs onto their table and we're drinking beer and eating pizza. And they start reciprocating. So in the middle of the second quarter during a commercial break, one of them turns around and says, so what do you do? I said, theology. He goes, what do you mean theology? So I hand him my business card. I said, Christian theology. I have a PhD in it. He goes, I don't believe any of that. Mm-hmm. Beep. You know. And I said, wow, you don't? Sucks to be you. He goes, what do you mean it sucks to be me? How come you believe it? I said, that's easy. The question is why you don't. Mm-hmm. So here comes the truth. He goes, well, it's all myth. So all right, I want to make sure I understand. You have read the Bible, really investigated thoroughly the claims of Christianity, have come to a reasoned conclusion as mythological, right? And he goes, I hate PhDs. <laughs> and I go, I bet you do. So did you do that or did you buy into a stereotype? Mm. And he says, well... I bought into a stereotype. And I said, you call yourself an educated American? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) And he goes, when you put it that way, I am. Mm. Now comes the real question. Why do you believe? Mm. And now we have a discussion. Never turn back to the football game. Because everywhere I look, people are buying into a stereotype. They don't really know. Now, granted, i got to be honest, that stereotype is often legitimate. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've been in a whole range of... Churches my whole life where pastors are pretty judgmental. 
Mm. Uh, I'm not that kind of pastor. Don't want to be. Sure. And so I recognize that the stereotype that they're buying into has some mm. legitimacy to it, and my desire is to overturn it. Mm. Yeah, and what I'm hearing about, and I want to, I want to kind of those because I get, I know you. I get to go into your office. I get to have these conversations with you, and what I'm hearing start to come out is this. I know of you that you have a redemptive hermeneutic. So the way that you approach scripture, the way that you interpret scripture is redemptive, redemptively. Um, and I think that that's important because all of us have different hermeneutics. We could have omissional hermeneutic or uh, social justice hermeneutic. We could, we could have all kinds of different ways that we come to and approach and interpret scripture. But yours mm-hmm. is redemptive. Yeah, everybody has, technically, everybody has a hermeneutical uh foundation. Mm-hmm. What we really mean by that is everybody has a lens through which they approach scripture. Mm-hmm. So if your lens happens to be sin, then you're going to, the sin is what's going to float to the surface. Mm-hmm. If it happens to be judgment, then that's what's going to float to the surface. So that comes up with all these wacky theologies that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. Well, that just makes them bipolar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you really go back and study it, He's not a God of wrath and a God of grace. Towards his children, he's always a God of grace. You have to identify what is the lens, and that usually is shaped by your tradition, your experience, the stereotype that you have framed. Hmm. That's where that comes from. So if you're raised in a legalistic church, then you typically come away as much as you hate it with a legalistic lens. Hmm. And so therefore, you want nothing to do with Christianity. That's my story. I walked away, came back later on in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And had to rethink and said, I, I don't buy that lens, so I have to replace it with a healthier one. So mine is redemptive. God's always redemptive and gracious. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I love, it's, a, I think, an important approach. I think it's a biblical approach, number one, but I also think it's an important approach because it allows people, like you just read out of Second Corinthians 5, we no longer regard them from a human point of view. That's right. We recognize the imago Dei, that they are made in the image of God. They have dignity and inherent worth. And so I think that that's an incredibly important aspect to this. And now I want to kind of relate it back to social justice. So how has your redemptive hermeneutic informed the way that you've approached much of the social justice issues that have come up during our day? Well, you think about it in our own culture. We have a two-class county, okay, rich and the poor, very little in between. And so one of the things you observe is that the, the wealthy people tend to have a perspective that goes something like this. Well, if we just gave everybody an opportunity, then they would uh, make the best of life. So we're not interested in outcomes. We're interested in opportunity. That's typically how the wealthier people think. Hmm. And that's based on the fact that their own life was that way. They were given the opportunity to take advantage of it. Hmm. But it's far more complex than that. You look at some of the minority groups, uh, and it's very complex how they got to where they are. I mean, you have the whole whatever their faith tradition is, whatever their social upbringing is, whatever their familiar their familial values and their family are. And you just don't give somebody an opportunity and they make the best of it. They may not know how to do that. And so there, that's an area to me, the poor, that's involving social justice right here. We're very highly white, as you know, um, and most of our minorities have to live far away and drive here to work. And so you really don't get to see them. So uh, my movement in social justice here is not so much to help the underprivileged, but to help the wealthy think about think differently about the underprivileged. Mm. And so that's just one area. So we as a church, uh, we have a very vibrant benevolence committee. I think we gave out eighty to 100000 last year. And a very vibrant food bank. 
So let's help the poor because that's what we're called to do, the marginalized, the oppressed. That's just one category Mm. of being able to be Mm self-sustaining. And I know for many of them, if we just gave them an opportunity, that wouldn't make a difference in their world. They don't know how to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. So it has to be giving them opportunities with the right and appropriate set of values and developing the skills that go with it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So let me piggyback off that, though. As as a pastor, as you're guiding, you're just leading and discipling the people in your congregation to think about this differently. How do you Mm -hmm. go about doing that? Is this done in a sermon series? Or how how do you provide ways for them to... Lit, like not only think differently about this, but then go about living it out and doing something differently. Sure. it You know, the sermon series in the church, uh, our worship pastor and me, we kind of have a thought between us that we cannot create the culture of the church. We can just create the environment by which culture is developed. Hmm. So Sunday morning is designed to create a certain environment. Culture is developed by the uh, 20 hours a week, steadily week after week of meeting people in church and out of church. Uh, And after nine years, we have a very clear culture. And I'm not the only one doing it. Our worship pastor does it. Our administrator does it. Several of our elders do it. We're just out with people. That's one of the things I changes I brought to the church is get out of the church. Go Mm. skiing, go hiking, go sailing, go four-wheel driving, go whatever you want to do. Just go out with people and, and talk, get to know them. So we've created a certain culture. Within that culture then comes the opportunities to deal with individuals on a personal level, starting with sin. Okay, yeah. People come to me all the time talk about sin. But within that context of dealing with sin is where you begin to see the prejudices float to the surface. Mm-hmm. For example, I had, a, and I'm sure I've shared it with you, but for your listeners, I had a guy a few years ago come to me and say, you know, you have a passionate walk with Jesus, and I don't have that. And I don't understand why. Well, the standard Christian answer is to tell him, well, go read your Bible more, pray more, and go to church more, right? But that doesn't really solve the problem. Mm. So I sat down with him. We were having coffee. I won't ever forget it. And I said, okay, let me ask you some questions. Now that you have the Spirit of God, you're naturally predisposed to move toward him. And that includes social justice. I didn't say that. That's in my thinking. So let me ask you some questions. I'm not looking for a right or wrong answer. And there's no, you're not going to be in any trouble. I just want to know the truth because sin blocks you in that journey. So are you sleeping with anybody that... Or doing anything inappropriate with a man or a woman that you shouldn't do? And he goes, no. I said, okay. Uh, are you doing anything that if your wife caught you, you'd be embarrassed over? Uh, no, because my wife's kind of my guide to the Holy Spirit. I can't see mm-hmm. him, but I can see her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I said, so, and I started going down the list of sins. Are you doing any drugs that your doctor wouldn't approve of? No. I said, are you greedy? And this is a wealthy man. Mm-hmm. And he stops and he said, uh, I don't know. Now in my mind... It's all I could do to keep from laughing. Ding, ding, ding. I just found the magic <laughs> yeah, sure. bullet, right? Yeah. And he said, well, what would I look like if I was greedy versus not? And I said, okay, you have a lot of capacity, a lot of wealth that God has blessed you with. When you look at that wealth, is your thinking naturally, I need to safeguard it and protect it and buy all the toys I want? Or is your natural disposition now to think, God has blessed me to give it away mm. to bless others? He goes, definitely the first. I said, okay, well, then maybe what you're struggling with is greed. So I gave him some verses to talk about greed and said, go home, pray with your wife, talk about it, and see. It's up to you to figure it out. He comes back a month later. We're in the middle of a coffee shop, crowded. He slaps the table really loud and yells out loud, I'm greedy. <laughs> and everybody looked, and I started laughing. I said, well, praise Jesus. Now we know. <laughs> yeah. So um, he said, I don't know how to be generous. Okay, now this is a function of social justice, if you think about it. 
Mm. Okay, the have and the have nots. When God said, I decide who is rich and I decide who is poor, I've asked many people in the equity discussion, let's assume we accomplish your goal and now we're all equal. Now what's the result? And it's so interesting to watch them come to the conclusion, well, if we're all equal, we don't don't need each other. Mm. I said, so maybe in a fallen world, disparity in wealth is created by God. And that's why he says, I decide who is rich and who is poor, because that begins to generate disparity so that now in the spirit comes in, we can start solving that problem and bring relationships together and reconcile in that one category. So he said, all right, I have an envelope full of cash. Can you, uh, you have a family that can use it? I go, yeah, a lot. And he said, all right, tell me who the family is and give it to them. Don't tell them who I am. And I want to watch and pray. So he did that month after month. Mm-hmm. After about six or eight months, I slapped him on the shoulder and said, how's your walk with Jesus? He said, it's growing and I'm learning to be joyful and give mm-hmm. the stuff away. Okay, now that's a key aspect in social justice. We need rich Christians. We just don't need greedy rich Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. We need generous ones because that unlocks the door well, in uh, the area of poverty to begin to solve a problem in our county. Mm. So now I have several Christians that they just specifically give to our benevolence fund so they can meet with poor people and really start solving problems. Yeah. So, you know, I can't, I mean, it'd be great if I was in downtown New York City, inner city church, where most of my church were needy and, you know, and minorities, ethnically diverse, but I'm not there. I'm here. Mm. So I work with wealthy people to say, where can you put your money so that it really makes a difference for the kingdom, for those that don't have it? Sure. So that's just one example. Yeah, I love that. Again, there's a lot to unpack there. And one of the things that I just wanted to pull out as you started to talk was, number one, you model it. And I think that that's an incredibly important, if you're going to, to try to cultivate a culture of love and generosity, like you have to model that for the people. It can't, that can't be taught necessarily in a Sunday service. You can teach about it, but it, people need to see those types of things lived out. And, and seeing the, the leadership of a church live that out, I think is an incredibly Live important thing. But then the other thing that I wanted to say, based on what you, you know, you're going out and it's not just you, but you have people on your leadership team that go out and they live life with people mm-hmm. and they learn to ask the right questions. And I think when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, I see that in Jesus. Jesus addressed people as individuals. And he went and he had conversations with them. And he and through those conversations, Jesus had a special insight into people. He could see what was really going on in people's hearts. But what I don't see Jesus doing is just lumping people together into one large category. Nope. He always addressed people as individuals. And he always addressed the issues of their heart. I mean, how many times did the disciples come to him or people come to him and ask a question? And he's like, it's the wrong question, right? You know, it's the, you're asking the wrong question. And so I think like just this idea of, Addressing people as individuals and learning how to do that, it gives us insight into what's actually going on in their heart, learning to ask the right questions. Um, because I think when we start to lump people together into categories, um, what ends up happening is we start to assume their motives. We start to assume their character. And I think that that's a dangerous place to be. Um, Jesus, I think, issued several warnings against that. But the one that comes to my mind is Matthew 7. The do not judge. And it's Jesus, Jesus is in, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think Jesus is telling us to ditch our moral compass or no. to never address sin. But I think what he's talking about there is don't assume somebody's motives just because you've seen a specific behavior, just because you see them aligning with a specific view or value. Don't assume you know their character. Don't assume you know their motivations. And so I, I don't know. I think as I relate that to social justice or LGBTQIA, because I've seen this in the church, there's people that get really passionate about all this 
But it seems like we can often be guilty of lumping people together into these categories, which I feel like can be pretty dangerous. Which is honestly heart and soul to prejudice. Mm. It really is. Yeah. When you you see a person dressed a certain way and you have a stereotype, that means you have a category. Yeah. That's why Paul is saying, got to quit evaluating people according to categories like the world does. Mm. Because that's how you get there. And then the argument gets moved to such a high level you can never solve it. People in my church don't know if I'm Democrat or Republican. Yeah. My kids don't even know. I don't tell them. Yeah. Only my wife knows and she's sworn to secrecy. <laughs> and I've told the church over and over again, I'm never going to tell you. Uh, and I'm not going to defend either side. The moment I defend Republicans and I've just alienated all the Democrats. The moment I defend a Democrat, I've alienated the Republicans. I said, ask me about a policy and let's have a discussion of how that's going to help or not. What if, uh, Ryan, what if God created all the affliction on purpose? Hmm. What if that is a necessary part of a fallen world? Hmm. So think for a minute about Adam and Eve. I do believe it's a real story. I don't believe it's mythological. Mm -hmm. And right off the bat, you learn that we have dignity because God gave him choice. Mm. That's the nature of human dignity is choice. So you let people decide. Well, you know what they did. They chose the wrong thing. Okay, now what if God had uh, simply cared for all their needs after that? They would have never needed him. With mm. the knowledge that they gained through the fall, they would have not needed him. Yeah. So the greatest gift he could give them starts with, let's kick him out of the garden where life is good, because otherwise they won't need me. Mm. And so affliction has, when you talk to Christians, their greatest hunger for Christ comes often in their deepest challenge and affliction mm. when they're crying out to God. Yeah. So that's why God can say, for instance, in Exodus 3, I am the one who made a person's mouth who can speak or can't speak, a person who can hear or can't hear, a person who is, can see but can't see. I made that. I decide who is rich and poor. I decide which nation to raise up, which one to destroy, Right. At the end of Deuteronomy, says to the Israel, when you turn away from me and I bring wars and pestilence and plagues among you, maybe you'll turn back. Hmm. And so if we don't have affliction, then we don't need God, hmm. which is the plight of wealthy people, is because they're able through money to insulate themselves from what a lot of other people go through. Hmm. And so Ecclesiastes, I think, argues that there's a time for everything. There's a time for war, a time for peace, a time for love, a time for hate. And it goes through a long list of those things. And that's a sovereign God at work as an act of grace to drive us back to him in a fallen world. Mm. So when you begin to think that way, so you see people around you, now back to social justice, that are hurting for a variety of legitimate reasons, that's the time to say, this is where you're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. So now we bring in our Christian doctrine and our theology into it and come alongside and say, let me help you. Mm. And this is where you'll often find some of the deepest faith. That's why when Christ's ministry, who were the ones that turned to him? It wasn't the Pharisees. It was mm. the people that were the paralytics, the lepers, the blind. They were hurting so deeply. Mm. And that may be a gift of God to drive them to him. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it makes me think of this idea of in our pursuit of, of social justice, or it, like as I've seen this lived out in the church. And and one of the things that I love about the men's ministry that I attend at Dillon Community Church is that it pulls from a variety of backgrounds. And I love that. It and it's, it's one of the only times I've ever experienced the 
myriad of backgrounds that are in that room and yet like everybody being cordial and having gentle and respectful discourse. Um, but it's, it's been, it's been great. But as I've been thinking about this pursuit of justice, so this is sometimes I think a little bit hard to talk about because this idea of social justice that covers a lot of different areas. We're talking about a lot of different things here, but as we're pursuing this, um, I guess the question that I have is what kind of fruit is being produced in our lives? Are we living into, are we leaning into the, the leading and the guiding of the spirit? Are we seeing love, joy, peace, patience, goodness lived out in our, in our lives? Or is it a fruit of, I don't know, anger because we can't believe somebody wouldn't agree with us on this specific topic or agenda. And, and so that's a question that I, I want to feel like I want to pose to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is what kind of fruit is being produced in your life as you mm. pursue this cause? Because I, I don't think we don't call out injustice. I don't think we remain apathetic or ambivalent to it. And we don't not name sin. But I guess the question is, what's becoming preeminent in our lives? Are we pursuing something other than God? Are we worshiping a specific agenda or are we worshiping God? Yeah, it really, the the whole approach to social justice starts with the individual. Mm. Okay, I'm not going to criticize what our government's doing. Mm -hmm. I pray for them. I may not like some of the things they do. We can have a conversation. But but what's really important to me is... uh, what's happening in my life and the life of the people that are here. Now, if God happens to raise you to a higher level, we have two people in our church just got uh, elected to the uh, city council, okay? Well, now they're at a higher level and they can affect a change a little bit higher than we can as individuals. But most Christians don't have that. Mm. So, I don't know, in 2015, if you remember, the Supreme Court voted that it's okay to, uh, gay marriage is legal at a federal level. Mm. So the elders said, you know, you gotta make a statement. It's like... Okay, great. So I get up at the amphitheater in front of five, six, seven hundred people, and I said, uh, I was more nervous about this than any sermon I've ever given. Yeah. And I said, uh, you guys all know that the Supreme Court decided this week that it's legal for uh, to have gay marriage. And the room got, re- I mean, the, the amphitheater got really quiet because what they're all thinking is, ooh, we're going to find out is he on our side or the other side. Mm. And I said, I've been struggling all week, but I'm not struggling with what the Supreme Court did. Now that's above my pay grade. I have no influence there. I'll let the Lord worry about that. But here's what I am struggling about. So I looked all week and I found a picture that describes my struggle. A man holding a picture and the, uh, or a sign. And the sign said, he's a protester. I'm so glad we have the Constitution to protect us from Bible controlling Christians. Hmm. And I said, that just captured the essence of my deep, deep sorrow. And I said, where in the world did we become known as political pundits and all of that? And I said, you know, uh, I'm not going to try to convince either of either side here what's the right thing to do. That's between you and the Lord. But what I do know is Christ said that if you have love for one another, everyone will know you're our disciples. Yeah. So we're, we're on the verge of splitting as a church. So do you want to be known as being on the right side of the Supreme Court decision, which none of you can impact, mm. except through prayer? Or do you want to be known in this county as people that love us, that we are a loving church? We love the poor, the disenfranchised, marginalized. And I said every church ought to ask the question every year, if we close the doors, would our neighbors be happy? Would they be sad? Or would they even know the difference? Mm. And there's only one right answer to that. And I said, so can we lay aside our differences on this and get back to our core mission of loving our people here that need us? Yeah. So the only time in life I've gotten a standing ovation. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it's this idea then of, of trusting the spirit 
it, it, God's in control. He's yeah. doing it. The Spirit's working. The Spirit's not, not working because of a political decision, no. a Supreme Court decision. The Spirit's still moving, right? And so our default position then needs to be to love. So let me go ahead and relate this to one more thing regarding to social, relating to social justice that I think ties in. And I've heard you talk about this, and I get really excited about it because I think you, you put it so well. But you've said that the church isn't in the business of sin management. <laughs> and we even just talked about this this morning. But I wonder if you could tie this in because you said earlier that it is not our job to convict, redeem, or transform. That is the Spirit's job. We can't do it. Then what that leaves for us to do is to love. Um, and so how does then that relate to sin management? Because we do take sin seriously. We do. Right? How are we then to love people well while also taking sin seriously if we're not in the business of sin management? That's a great question, Ryan. I have found in my own life and ministry around the world that you can have an honest conversation with somebody without putting them on the defensive. I'm not here to sell something. Hmm. Okay. I even hear, I even read books on evangelism using sales imagery. You got to close the deal. That's not my job. I can't do that. And so that's why as a pastor, I spend 20 hours a week out in, out in the county with people. Half, you know, a lot of them are in our church. A lot of them aren't. Because if they feel safe, if they feel like I'm not a judging pastor, I mean, Jesus said in Luke 6, do not judge, do not condemn. So I tell the church all the time, if you're stuck in sin, don't feel ashamed. Come talk to me. You know, no judgment, no condemnation. You will get laughter because you got yourself in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And so I have people coming to me all the time. Hey, I'm I'm sleeping with another woman and I'm, I don't know what to do. It's a mess. Mm. Um, I mean, all the time I have people coming to me every week with this. And so... I've trained our staff and our people to think in terms of sin is not to be managed. People are to be loved. And if the Holy Spirit, when he does his job, they're not going to be happy because the definition of sin has nothing to do with judgment. That was taken care of on the cross. Mm. Sin now is all about um, joy. So even with our teenagers, we talked the other night that that you're going to experience grace when you sin. I mean, that's just heart and that's part of Romans. Yeah. Right? And uh, and God's giving you freedom. So the the teen said, well, if we have freedom, we're going to experience grace. Why don't we sin more? And I started laughing. I said, it's Romans 6. Romans 6 and we yeah. keep sinning so that grace will multiply. And I said, you could do that. Go for it. Send your heart out. You'll experience all kind of grace. But don't confuse grace mm. with joy. Grace comes because of the cross. Joy comes because you're faithful to your Lord. Mm-hmm. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So a drug addict experiences grace, but they don't experience joy. Yeah. A person that experiences grace and joy are those that are faithful. Mm. And you could see all the teens, all the light bulbs came on. Yeah. Oh, I said, that's why you want to be faithful. It's not be- You don't want to avoid sin because of judgment. You want to avoid sin because it wrecks your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we can step into people's lives that are really messy. And there's a lot of messiness in this world. And we can slowly guide them out when the Holy Spirit has done his convicting work. We can guide them through a pathway of redemption that leads to joy. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think um, it reminds me of this. I read in a book by Chip Ingram. Um, I don't remember the title of the book, but it might be What to Do When You're Spiritually Stuck or something like that. And this idea of living for God's approval or from God's approval. And that what you just said makes me think of that. When we're living for God's approval, we try to cut that out and we try to get our life on track. 
and we try to do better until we mess up again. And then what ends up happening is our self-esteem, our idea of self-worth rises and falls with uh, rises and falls with our ability to please God, right? We're trying to prove something to him that we're worthy of his love. We're worthy of his investment in our lives or whatever it is. But when we're living from God's approval, that frees us up. Like, so the New Testament says that we're a new creation. We are no longer sinners. We might sin, but no longer are we identified by the title of sinner. We're identified as a new creation. And, And when we live into that and we live from that, I do believe, as you're saying, it brings about a deeper sense of joy, a deeper sense of peace. We're, we're more at peace. We're more whole in our lives rather than just trying to live for it all the time. So yeah, I, I was thinking about that. And then the other thing I just wanted to get maybe a quick thought on is in, I, I just went through Matthew 7 with a group of local guys. And so we talked scary a lot passage. about, yeah, it's a scary passage. And that's that passage begins with the idea of do not judge, which we already talked about where I think Jesus is Really, his intent there is to talk about not assuming somebody's character or not assuming somebody's motives. But then you have this weird couple of verses right there at the tail end of that, where it says, do not cast um, your pearls before swine. Do not throw what is valuable before dogs. And I, I think about that. And one of the things that came to my mind and trying to keep it in context, and I wonder if you would agree, is sometimes I think we're guilty of as Christians of trying to put something on somebody that they don't value. So a lifestyle that they that they don't share or a, a worldview that they don't share. And so we, we wonder why we're trying to give them this thing that we find very valuable, that we care a lot about, our worldview, our, our way of life. We try to give that to them and then we're offended when they, when they don't receive it. And I wonder if, if that's what that passage is kind of getting at of this idea of be careful who you're giving this to and and be careful in how you approach it Mm -hmm. before you go and assume that they're going to automatically value the same thing that you value. Maybe have a conversation first and understand what they value, because if we're to be agents of good news, then man, I want to know their situation. I want to speak good news into their situation. I want to know what they're longing for. I want to know what their hopes are for. I want to know where they're hurting so that I can speak good news there rather than just trying to force this ideal or this idea onto them, this worldview onto them that they don't share. And so I've, I've just been thinking about that and wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think the key word that you use there is force. Mm. Don't force it on. Uh, I think one of the saddest stories in all the Bible is the story of Judas. Because uh, in Matthew 7, also, Jesus said, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount a little bit before that, he said, do not swear by an oath. And then Matthew says uses that very same word to say that's what Peter did. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus said, if you deny me before publicly. If you deny me publicly, I'll deny you before the Father. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what Peter did. And so it obviously, casting pearls before swine cannot have anything to do with speaking truth because Jesus did that with Judas. Mm. Okay. So the key word that you use there is force. When you try to sell somebody, I mean, if you can't convict a person, redeem or transform a person, and you try that, your only option is manipulation. Mm. And you can tell you're manipulated if you get frustrated, Mm. okay? And so uh, Jesus walked with Peter and Judas equally for three years. And um, he even extended Passover to Judas, right? He took the bread. Yeah. And um, at the end of life, I mean, Peter betrayed him, Mm. but God didn't, Jesus didn't uh, deny him before the Father. So it's not the end of the story. Jesus is giving us an ideal teaching, but then his actions show what that looks like in a fallen world. Mm. So he pursued Peter. 
And at the end of the story, and helped reconcile him, he could not pursue Judas because Judas hung himself. Yeah. Even the last thing Jesus said to him was called him a friend. Yeah. Right? Are mm-hmm. you are you really gonna betray me? We ate broke bread together. Yeah. And uh and he let him do it. That's freedom, that's dignity. And if Judas had not committed suicide, I am absolutely convinced Jesus Jesus would have pursued him all the way to the end of life. Said, Judas, come back, come back. But mm-hmm. he didn't give him the option. So in the end times he will deny him before the Father. Away from me, I never knew you. Yeah. And so, yet he spoke truth to Judas the whole time. So casting pearls before swine doesn't mean you shouldn't tell people the truth and have the conversation. Yeah. You're just not trying to force them. Mm. So Paul in Romans 1 says, every human suppresses the truth. There's the key word in unrighteousness. And when those that wake up and decide to move toward faith, that you take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So I talk to people honestly. I have honest conversations. And if they're not interested, not a problem. I still love them, have a beer with them, and wait. It's not their time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's love, right? So, it's, it's, it's not being, your default position isn't to be offended when they disagree right. with you, right? That's and a statement I think, about you, not them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important. All right. So bringing this back to the idea of sin management or trying to curb people's behaviors to fit a particular mold, um, which is interesting to me because behavior modification isn't the goal, right? Like what we desire and what we hope for more than anything else is to see people fall more and more in love with Jesus. And as they press into Jesus, the spirit is the one that's bringing about transformation in their lives. As you said earlier, it's the spirit's job to convict, redeem, and transform. We can't do that. That's the role of the spirit. Um, and so bringing this again back to the idea of sin management or trying to curb people's behavior, how have you tried to approach this or talk about this to people in your church as it pertains specifically to LGBTQIA? Because I know that you have strong relationships with a lot of people in the community that are involved in same-sex relationships, and some of these individuals attend Dillon Community Church. And so how have you tried to approach something as complex and nuanced as this? Well, um, again, another great question. And you want me to do this quickly, huh? What, like <laughs> one minute or an hour? No. <laughs> so they, they come to us, and it has struck me that as I've looked at, and by the way, this question is worldwide. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter where I am, which country I'm teaching in, they all have the same question. Yeah. So I often start out with, why do you feel the need to get involved in sin management? Mm. So in other words, you need to manage their sin, okay? And uh, that always throws them for a loop, and they all end up laughing when I put it that way. Um, you know, I said, as I've looked at churches around the world, they default to one of two positions, both of which I think are unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Every, and again, I'm being a little general here, but that's because of what I've seen. Um, every person, every human needs a pathway to redemption. Doesn't matter if they're a believer or not. Yeah. If they're not a believer, they need the pathway to redemption to experience forgiveness and salvation. If they are a believer, they need the pathway to redemption to experience joy. Yeah. Okay, but they still need it. Yeah. So when it comes particularly to the uh, homosexuality, the sexual orientation question, and now the broader question of how I identify, okay? Talked to a 13-year-old girl. I said, so you're in a lesbian relationship. How do you identify? She said, well, I started out lesbian. Then I decided I was bi. Then I decided I was uh, trans. And now I figured out I'm gender fluid. Okay, now I I just hugged her and loved her because I don't care. Uh, I mean, it's going to be okay. But I looked at her in my brain and I said, you don't even know really what you're talking about. You're only 13. Mm-hmm. Okay. So churches default to one of two positions typically. There's one group of that move far in one direction to affirm it. And I know their motive's right because they want to welcome them. But the moment you affirm sin or to be more technical, the moment you normalize sin, it no longer needs redemption. Mm-hmm. So there's no pathway to redemption needed. Mm-hmm. And then there's a group of churches 
that move in the opposite direction where they um, they don't normalize it. What they do is they ostracize and marginalize. You're not welcome here. Well, now you've removed all the pathways to redemption. So I told our elders, don't worry about it. Just let them come to our church and let it happen. Okay. And just step over the line and love them for who they are. No matter what their agenda is. Everybody has an agenda. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Democrats that come to my church, they have one agenda. The Republicans have another agenda. Mm-hmm. You can do, like I said, the world yeah, can yeah. categorize you so many ways. Sure. And every categorization or division has an agenda. And so I just am intrigued by the agenda. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love, let's go out and have coffee. I just sat honestly with a, a lady uh, last week who hasn't been to church since she was a teenager. She's, my, she's old. Yeah. Because she told her pastor, I think I might be a lesbian. He said, well, you just committed the unpardonable sin. You're no longer welcome. Mm. And I go, oh, my gosh. Oh, I can't even imagine saying that. Yeah. I said, well, how are you in my church? And she said, well, last summer in the amphitheater, I walked by and heard the music and thought it was a concert. And walked in and just sat down and listened to you. And I thought, could there be a pastor that really believes in grace? Mm. Right? Her wife died a year before the pandemic of a brain aneurysm. Wow. And now she's just lonely. So we're having a blast hanging out and talking about it. And uh, we talked it through. I, I've told all of people, I mean, it doesn't matter what their agenda is. I don't want to be guilty of bait and switch. So you are you identify differently than I do. Let's have the conversation because mm-hmm. I want you to know what I think. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to try to manage your sin. I'm just going to mm-hmm. love you. Yeah. You know, and let the Holy Spirit deal with it. Yeah. And so, yeah, we have people in our church from all different However you want to divide culture, we got it. We're a community church. We have everybody from Catholics to uh, fundamental Baptists and everybody yeah. in between. Pentecostals, you name it. Yeah. And they all got their own agenda. <laughs> yeah. So to love them means become curious. Hmm. Listen to them. But why do you believe that? Most people can't talk more than three to five minutes without repeating themselves. Yeah. So if you just start asking questions, they get to the end of their road very quickly. Yeah. And now they're kind of curious about, hmm, now where do we go? Yeah. So what I really appreciate about your approach, and again, this is just because I feel like I'm privy to a lot of these special moments because I can walk over from my office into your office. You can. Um, But I I know this about you is that, so if if the question is, how do we stand firm in our faith and share our beliefs wisely on these controversial topics? Be honest. It's just to be honest. Love people. Be honest about where you stand. But then really what one of the common themes that I'm hearing in this conversation is ask questions. And let the Holy Spirit do the work. It comes back to civil discourse. Yeah. To be honest with you, I have our elders, because we're a community church, our elders represent the church. I have elders all over, men and women, scattered all over the theological spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so we routinely have a discussion on what makes civil discourse healthy. What does it look like? Yeah. So I told our elders, you can talk, you can disagree, you can fight, you can argue, you can debate, you can even draw blood. I don't care. As long as when we're all done, we all go out for a beer together. Yeah. And they laugh and they've gotten really good at it. Yeah. That I mean, that's that's really good. I, I just, again, I think about this idea of like stopping asking questions, having civil discourse, honoring the other person because we are to treat each other with respect. And loving them for who they are. Loving them for who they are. And Where then, the Holy Spirit hasn't brought them yet. Yeah. And then but uh, what I love about you were doing this this morning in, in the men's Bible study, but you were just talking about how you love going out. And when people have these bigger topics they want to talk about. You just sit down and you'll start sipping on your coffee, let them talk, and then you might ask like a really, well, why do you think that? And then you start sipping on your coffee again. And it's because, and what I appreciated about that is that you let the spirit do the work. And it might be awkward for a couple of moments, but the spirit's moving. You can start to see them 
wanting to like you, the motivations of their heart start to come out. Um, what they care about starts to come out. And then you can start to address that rather than just assuming you know what they believe or assuming you know what their motivations are. You mm-hmm. are listening to them, what is deeply rooted in their hearts, and then you let the spirit work. Back to your first question. That is the ultimate experience in freedom, not oppression. Because mm. hmm. I'm giving them the freedom to be them. And I think of it this way, be idiots. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and just laugh at them. Yeah. And I ask one person, wait a minute. This is a free country. You can believe what you believe. Do you actually believe what you're saying? Yeah. This young guy, he's like 19. He goes, uh, I think so. I said, okay, have fun with it. Yeah. He disappears. Three years later, he just got a text from me. Hey, I'm back in the county. You want to meet again? Yeah. <laughs> I go, yeah. yeah. I want to see how you're different. Yeah. No, that's good. Love people. Embody joy. What you've been given through the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And just treat people with respect. Well, Jim, I, I really appreciate this this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. And Thanks and, for the invitation. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be good because we do know that people in the ski snowboard community, they like to take up causes. They really do. They do. And, and they're all over the map. They're all over the map. And so this is actually going to be important for our community to hear. I think it's going to be a blessing to them. Um, as always, it's our prayer that these conversations help all of us to bridge better yes. and to shine brighter. We want to thank you for tuning in and we look forward to you tuning in next week as we get to another sfc ask me anything question